Born and raised in Kansas, Linda Spaulding came to Canada in 1982 from Hawaii. She is the author of three earlier novels and two acclaimed works of nonfiction, The Follow, which was shortlisted for the Trillium Book Award, and the Pearson Writers Trust Nonfiction Prize. And most recently, Who Named the Knife? She received the Harbourfront Festival Prize for her contribution to the Canadian literary community. She lives in Toronto, where she is the editor of Brick Magazine. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you. Thank you. And congratulations on your recent victory. Your novel, The Purchase, has just won the Governor General's Literary Award for Fiction in English. Mm -hmm. There's a lot to consider in this novel. I hope so. Would you like to give me a very brief precy, or are you sick and tired of doing that? <laughs> well, I'll tell you a little bit about it. First of all, it's, it's based on one incident that I know for sure happened, and that is that in 1798, a man named Daniel Dickinson was disowned by his Quaker community. Disowned to a Quaker meant the same as excommunicated to a Catholic. He was disowned. He was probably shunned to some extent. He packed his children and a very new wife into a wagon. A Methodist. She was a Methodist. And it is my contention that, that it is for that reason that he was disowned, that he had married this Methodist in somewhat untimely fashion because his wife had died very recently. Kind of like uh, Hamlet. Kind of. Packs this young wife, Methodist wife, and his children in a wagon and goes to Virginia, which is a long trek in those days, in a, in a Conestoga wagon, which people already had in 1798, and which were in fact invented in Pennsylvania. I didn't know that myself until I started my research. Anyway, that much is, we know. That okay. much is true. Yeah, that was, that was the, the hook nut. that you grabbed that onto. That was the hook. And the other hook was that this young Quaker father, who I've no doubt was a very serious and devout sort of man, became a slave owner, mm-hmm. which is anathema to any Quaker. They were They were the abolitionists. first abolitionists. They were the primary abolitionists. They outlawed slavery within their own sect way, way, way early. And they, of course, later managed the Underground Railroad and did all that. So what happened to this man? What happened to his, to his heart and his mind that would allow this breach of his own ethic? Well, there's a double breach, isn't there? Because he, he marries a Methodist, which is against his... It's against his, his calling, it's against his thing, but I suspect it's not against his conscience in the way that owning a slave or buying a slave would be. Although he does this at, not the insistence, but his father tells him, you need a, a mother for these children. Right. That's one of the reasons I mentioned Hamlet, because I thought about Ophelia listening to Polonius, and look at the trouble that that got her in. Didn't it, though? He wants Daniel to have a mother for the orphans, but he certainly doesn't want it to be Ruth the Methodist. In fact, he says, you must send her back to the almshouse where she has come from, because Mm -hmm. she's in Daniel's home as an indentured servant and a kind of low-grade nanny. So he's listening to his father, but he's really not. I think he's actually proving something to his father in the way that sons will. You know, all right, you want me to get married? I'll show you. I'll show you married. So it's more uh, of a rebellion. And right? also, uh, you want me to send Ruth back, but that's not right, because shes I have taken a bond on her for five years, and how can I send her back to the poorhouse, having done that? See, everything about Daniel is question, because there's always a little bit of self-interest in his rational 
thinking. Mm-hmm. I think he's very religious. I think he's a deep thinker, but I also think that he sometimes lets himself believe that he's doing things for righteous reasons. Yeah, which which brings us to the purchase. The purchase, he goes to an auction. To buy some tools. To buy some tools, and he ends up buying a young slave boy. And he's angry with himself for doing so, and blames God for putting his hand up in the air. Mm-hmm. So he's... He's saying, I couldn't have done that. I had no volition. I certainly never meant to buy that boy. I couldn't possibly, and, and yet I couldn't pull my hand down. Therefore, it must have been God's will. So he abdicates his own responsibility. On the other hand, it's a very destructive thing to his own well-being, but he's done. Yes and no. He's well, got yes a he's no. got a young boy yeah. who could turn out to and does turn out to be an asset. Sort of, yeah. Well, he raises pigs. True, true. Might not have, not be the asset that the horse would have been. Yes, which incidentally which he has to trade the horse. Yeah. To get the boy, and of course he ends up with no tools. Yeah. Which were pretty important, and um, he's ashamed of himself. There's a fairy tale somewhere in there. <laughs> He's supposed to get something, and he comes back with something that's... Was it Jack and the Beans? Maybe it was. He just had a few beans. He had to, yeah, he had to take good thought. So he's got this boy, and he's lost his best horse. He owes $200 to boot. Which is a huge amount of money back then. Huge amount of money. And he's been bested. I mean, he's been made a fool of. Yeah. Because that boy is not worth $400. As you say, he's ashamed... He's a laughing stock. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're on the horse. Let's stick with the horse okay. because the horse takes us to the Aeneid and the Trojan horse. Mm. There's a lot about horses in here and there's a lot about the Aeneid. Yes. Why? Well, first of all, I wanted Daniel to be a man not just of the book, that is the Bible, but of something more classical. I wanted him to have that to himself that didn't belong to anyone else so that he had his own private way of thinking and dreaming and fantasizing and imagining. And it wasn't all biblical because there's a, a pretty heavy strain of... Yeah, you know, I mean, just look at the, a lot of the names yeah, that you stuff. use for yeah. characters. Ruth, for example. Now, I want you to know that this Daniel is based on my great-great-great-grandfather and that every name in the family is for real. So what you've done is you've, you've taken your own family history, yeah. you've woven it in with one of the great classic works of all time, with the Bible and with Quakerism, and you grew up. Well, they were Quakers, these guys. Right, but you real. also happened to have grown up within that religion. I spent some time in my teenage years in that religion, but it wasn't my birthright. It turns out that both sides of my father's family, I didn't even know this when I was writing the book, I've since found out both sides of his family were Quaker. There was never a mention of it. I think my father probably thought it was rather silly, best to be forgotten, you know, the way we might, some of the things our ancestors believed. It's almost an embarrassment? Well, perhaps. Maybe not an embarrassment, but just not to be considered very seriously. There's a lot worse religions to be oh, associated with. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I think there's hardly a better one, in fact. Um, I'm, I'm very um, indebted to the Quakers for all kinds of reasons. But it wasn't, it wasn't something that was ever told to me. I've, I found it out, I think, from my brother when I was a teenager. It was astonishing. Oh, my goodness. Okay, so the Trojan horse, horses... Uh, I'm digging. Well, I want to hear uh, about your thought about the Trojan horse. Well, I'm. I'm going to say I'm trying to 
so what happens? There's this sense that the horse is is a gift. There are different people saying you should be aware of it, a good thing, and it turns out to be not a very good thing. A very bad thing. Mm -hmm. So... I should have had the horse bring some great disease into the auctioneer's house. That would have been good. <laughs> yeah, so, but you know, he gets rid of the horse. So the horse doesn't really bring him any bad luck. He's not defeated by the horse, is he? I think he's heartbroken. Does he love that horse? He loved his horse. He probably loved his horse more than anything. Okay. So is that as deep as it goes? Well, something that happens in the book, and I'm not sure how much it matters to anyone else but me, and I think in an earlier draft it was a strong, there was a stronger version of it. But something that happens in the book is that when his littlest boy is dying and his biggest girl says, we must go to the doctor, we must go to the doctor, and Daniel's been saving every penny to get his horse back. And she insists that they must, in fact, spend it on the doctor. They must get little Joseph to the doctor and forget about the horse and get your money out of the piggy bank and get in the wagon and let's go. And on the way to the doctor, he swerves off the road and goes to get the horse. And while he's in that moment, he hears his horse, he goes into the pasture, he puts his hand on the horse. The child succumbs. The child would have succumbed anyway, surely. But he made the decision beforehand. But he did make the decision. And I don't know how important that that seems to, uh, to a reader. I'm not sure I underlined it. But it's very important to Mary, his daughter, who... Betrayal. Yeah blames him for getting his priorities wrong. Yeah. Well, and as you say, it's sort of self-interest. The horse is, he may love the horse for the horse, but he also loves the horse for what it can do. Exactly. And as a friend of mine uh, who read that early draft said, oh, this is a very smart man. He knows that the horse matters more to the family than the kid. Really. Well, pragmatic. He's pragmatic. Smart. He's a farmer. Heartless might be another way of putting it. But but in fact, he's not heartless. You know, I mean, it's so... Anyway, that little moment, I don't know how, how much it reverberates. Okay. But it interests me. How godly is that? How godly? Well, I had some issues with my editor about it and a couple of other readers who said, you know, no one will ever like Daniel if you have him do that. Mm. And so I had to play it down. I had to say, well, he was on the way to the doctor... He just made a little swerve. In fact, in the earlier thing, he simply decided he wasn't going to go to the doctor. He was going to get, get the horse. You know, he, he gets out of the wagon, I think, still in this version, and kneels down and says, give me my direction to the Lord, right? Yeah, and I suppose that, I mean, does he blame that on the Lord as well? Or could he? He, blame, uh, he can say everything is fate. I think he does. He's very bitter. I think after Joseph dies that he pretty much loses his faith. Okay. It's never quite stated that way, but he, he definitely cools off. What about the mayor of Casterbridge? Mm-hmm. You know my secret longing to be Thomas Hardy, do you? <laughs> I picked up on a theme. Uh, now, was it Michael Henchard in the mayor of Casterbridge? He sold his, his wife and child, daughter at, a, at an auction. Mm-hmm. He didn't acquire anything. Mm-hmm. Is that in there at all? I don't know, you know, I mean... Who knows what goes on in the little brain in the middle of the night? What past reflections? Yeah. I always think of the one that Thomas Hardy, where the older boy hung himself and all the younger children on the back of the door. Remember that? What was, which one was that? Is that Jude the Obscure? Yep. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, and no wonder he got out of novels. and <laughs> But he was chased out of novels, wasn't he? And he got the poetry. Mm. Um, horses, trees. Trees are big. Trees are big. How come trees are so big? I don't know. 
<laughs> the slave boy on the tree was one of the first things I wrote very long time ago. I can't even remember writing it. That's a powerful piece of writing. I did feel I wanted a more benign tree, so I, I decided to plant the apple tree mm. as a kind of... Tree of life. Or yeah, kind of yeah. opposite image. But we've also got a family tree in there as well. We've got a family tree, and we've got a couple of sycamores that the children play in. And finally, uh, the moon. Ah. That moon shows up every two or three chapters, if and not I more like often. I like the moon. I like the moon. Because it's... Pretty. It's pretty. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I should tell you that there's some very, very, and uh, not in a demeaning way, pretty writing in this. Mm. It's lovely. It's like, I, I felt like I wanted to put on Beethoven's Pastoral Symphony. <laughs> really, I did. Oh, good. Should so I, I could have a CD that would come with, <laughs> with the book, the second edition. <laughs> with the last book. <laughs> uh, yeah, okay. So, but no, no really, seriously, there's, a, there's just a delightful mm. uh, pastoral feel to the book. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because you don't want it to be too awful. Well, I think Hardy sort of tries, it's kind of a, a melancholy, but it's beautiful. Yeah, I know my editor in New York said, doesn't anyone have any fun in this story? <laughs> <laughs> I tried to write in a few sort of whimsical scenes. There's one where he puts a log in the fireplace and they get sap off of it and the kids all eat it as candy. I thought that was very sweet. That was happy. Yeah, but sap doesn't taste that good. Well, I think that kind of sap does. The maple sap? Was it maple? It wasn't maple, was it? It was something. I don't know. I can't remember. Okay. I got it out of some book. Okay, let's get back briefly to the uh, Aeneid mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. in the Aeneid we've got the conflict between duty and passion and fury between fate and action, male versus female, and calm weather versus storms. And looking for home, a new home. Searching for a new home, that's right. To sort of save your people. Yeah. Well, okay, here's the, here's the question. We look at the Quakers as a society of friends. Mm-hmm. Daniel doesn't have any friends. He doesn't, I know. He loses all of his friends. I don't know if he ever had any friends. Well, he must have had some friends. He was a friend. A well, community. that's the sort of a contrast there, isn't there? Mm. This is a lonely dude. Yeah. Yeah, we don't know very much about his... He's left, and mm. he's moved to Brandywine, and he's moved into the enclave of his wife's family and his wife's wealth. So whatever friends he had in that town would have been connected to her, connected to the Quaker meeting, connected to his in-laws. I'm sure, which isn't really a buddy. No, it's not. You're right. Mm. You're right about that. It's just an interesting use of the word friends, isn't it? Mm. And that, I guess, ties in with gods working their ways through humans. Which they Um, do in the Aeneid. Yeah. Come to think of it, I don't think I ever thought of that. Well, the gods, they play with us humans as as little toys, don't they? Absolutely. And my guy's better than your guy. And yeah. take that and that. Yes. And there's jealousies. and Yeah. So there's jealousy now between Mary, Mary and Ruth. Ruth. Yep. Deep. And now in the Bible, Ruth, I think she's connected to Joseph somehow. So it's almost like she's the mother of Jesus and Mary's the... <laughs> <laughs> hmm. I don't know. Somebody who, who interviewed me said all the names were very appropriate. How did I ever do that? And I said... These were just family names. Yeah. 
just speaks to the power and the influence of, of the Bible. Mm-hmm. If it gets back to the family tree, I run a website called Literary Tourist. Mm-hmm. And literary tourism is all about going to the place. And that's exactly what you did. Yeah. You found the cabin. I did. Now, can you express that experience? It was amazing. Let me tell you a couple of things. First of all, I'm a, I'm a sheepish researcher. I'm a lazy researcher. I tend to sit in my chair in my house and do everything I can there, or in a used bookstore, or in a library. To actually go out by myself and tootle around... So I had a, a niece in Washington at the Library of Congress doing something or other, and I said, let's drive across Virginia and let's take the route of our ancestors. You thanked her in the acknowledgments. So we did this, and without great expectations, we drove from Washington, D.C. to Jonesville. We didn't drive from Brandywine, but we pretended we did. Mm-hmm. And we got to Jonesville, and it's a punky little place, but it has a courthouse. So we went to the courthouse, and then we went to the... Didn't have a library, so we went to the next town, which is Rose Hill, which had a library. And there was an old lady sitting who goes to the library every morning and sits there, and you may ask her questions. She's probably in her 80s. She was a font of information. She said, but don't you know that your family's house is still standing? And it's the Dickinson Millborn house. And I said, what are you talking about? We happened to be staying in a little motel about literally about half a mile from this brick mansion, which Daniel's son had built. And I knew enough about family history to know that Daniel's son was the one who had screwed his brother John, who was my direct ancestor. John was Ruth's son. John was Ruth's son. So there, there's a half? Yeah, but he, he screwed John by getting, and this is, again, history. He got John to co-sign a note because he was always in debt. And he went bankrupt, and John, and they lost everything. And that's when they left Kansas, which was another generation. So, fine, I knew Where that. So here suddenly is, lo and behold, this Amazing. big brick house with four chimneys, and nobody's in it, and we wandered around, and we sat on the rocking chairs in the porch, and we pretended like we were, you know, the rich owners of this house and so forth. And then we went down the road, and there was a little tiny house, and we knocked, and we said, Who's, who owns that? And she said, oh, my sister. She'll be here on Saturday. She comes to mow the grass and so forth. So we came back. And there was Mrs. Milborn, I've forgotten her name, in her curlers <laughs> with, her, with her husband, you know, practically with a pitchfork. Mm. And they'd come to do the sort of thing. And they were only too keen to show us everything. The smokehouse, all of this built by slaves, all of this built by Benjamin's slaves, because Benjamin was a son of a bitch. Yeah, he's got a reputation for that. He see. was yeah. a son of a bitch. Yeah. And they told us, they said, come in the house, and we are going to show you where Benjamin kept his slaves. Now, these are Southerners. Now, they're not softies. Mm. And she opens the basement door and almost pushed us down the stairs <laughs> into this dark, dank, nasty. And I suddenly felt myself going blind. And I, it was, I couldn't figure out what was wrong. It turned out later, I learned, a few days later, that I had suddenly got floaters in my eyes. You know what a floater is? Well, mm. it, it's it it's something that happens to your retina where you see all these lines. It's like you've got cobwebs in your eyes. Mm. And I thought, Benjamin has hexed me. 
He doesn't want me to see where he kept his slaves. He's embarrassed or ashamed. He, he's ashamed. Down, she said, down there is where he kept them. No light, no windows, and they died like flies. Because you're supposed to have your slaves out in the field in their quarters, you know, mm-hmm. with some sunlight and some corn patches and stuff. Anyway, that was so shocking and upsetting. And, um, you know, we all like to think we come from good people. Yeah. 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 I like to think that. Well, you do, because he's, he's well, only half your blood. Yeah. Well, anyway, um, smokehouse and so forth. And then off we walk and we wander, and there is this mass of logs and stones. What is this? Oh, this is Daniel's cabin. This sounds almost too good to be true. I know! I have photographs I could show you. And I said, you're kidding. And she said, no. It was standing when I was a girl, when my father bought this house, but he thought it was unsafe and he tore it down. Of course. But there it was. And okay, so a little creek. I made the creek a bit bigger, but anyway. You know, so the literary tourist mm-hmm. who loves your book can go there. Can see all of this. Mm-hmm. So the feeling was what? It was amazement? It was... Well, I'm sort of a, I'm a bit of a vampire about stuff like that. Like, I love graveyards. I love, you know. You're a necro-tourist. I'm a necro-tourist. And and there were three graves, which belonged to one of Daniel's son's granddaughters. No, maybe the whole family. I can't remember. Anyway, but, you know, Quakers didn't mark their graves. So there were only the three that would have been post-Quaker. And there was another house in a different part of town that belonged to somebody else. I mean, you know. But the funny thing was, there is absolutely no visible clue of a Dickinson now in that whole area. Mm. It was a pretty big family. I mean, he had a lot more children. Did they change their name? Hmm? Did they change their name, yeah. or did they just? Oh. I they think just they all left. I think they left pre-Civil War, except for one of John's <laughs> sons. His first son, by his first wife, stayed and fought for the South. Maybe they were all just—they weren't welcome there because everyone hated them. Well, partly it was because Benjamin lost, ran up debts. So that was certainly why John left. And it's funny when a family just is gone. Isn't it? Well, you know, it's it's funny because I was speaking with, on another literary tourist project, (laughs) to one of your colleagues, Michael Redhill, Mm -hmm. about uh, his novel Consolation Mm -hmm. and how big parts of Toronto just disappeared. I know. The only thing you can recognize from, say, 100 or 150 years ago is... Osgood Hall in, in that area, for example. Really? Yeah. yeah. Oh, I love that book. The image of that boat underwater. Oh, my God. So, yeah, it just tells you how ephemeral, mm-hmm. um, thinking of that mm-hmm. poem you know, about the sand. Uh, anyway. One of your characters' name is Fox, and George Fox was the founder of the Quakers. Yeah. Well, the reason that, that his name is Fox is not because of that, but because my first thought was I want to keep as close to what I know to be true as possible because I thought it'd be fun. The actual neighbor's name was Cox. And then I thought, I can't do that because he's such a bad guy. And he probably has some great-great-granddaughter who doesn't want to hear that he did these things, which he didn't do. I mean, I made all that up. So I changed his name to Fox because I thought it was Jester Fox was a cute name. And I hadn't really thought about old George. That was a coincidence. (laughs) It's uh, yeah. the reader giving you insight. It is. Or not it's insight. happening all the time. It's not the insight. Time. It's just... No, it's association. It's just, yes, exactly. And it's, it happens all the time. Yeah. Interviews. I'm just kind of blown away by it. Because it makes me wonder about my subconscious, of course. Or my unconscious, more like it. Fox, interestingly, you're not sure if he has had sex with Bette or not. I mean, that happened you're, you're, an awful lot. Well, right. And you're not sure until you get into... There's later in the book when you get into her point of view... 
and she remembers being under him. And oh yes, the father and the and boy. She remembers the boy with, taking a yeah. whiz on mm-hmm. the right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> but nobody seems to care much that that's happened. And not. that's again the sort of hypocrisy of the mm-hmm. of the Christians. Mm-hmm. It's much easier to think that that Bry is the son of the slave than the son of Jester Fox. It is, and I guess I was waiting to see what color it was going to be. Mm-hmm. I think there's a misprint in the book, because I was reading that the other day, and it says, there was his dusty skin color to consider. This is in Daniel's point of view. He's mm-hmm. watching the kid run, and he said, though more likely he was the son of Jester Fox, there was his dusty skin color to consider. And I'm sure I wrote dusky, which I think is much prettier. I think it is, too, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to have to change that for the next one. one yeah. like, dusty? No, he's not no. dusty. No, he's not dirty. <laughs> it's dusty. It's dusky. Yeah. yeah, it's like the evening. Mm-hmm. Looking for the inner light. That's what Quakers do. They're looking for spark. They're looking for the thing, the glow of God that resides in everyone. Which I think they see as a light, but it's it's the divinity in everyone. So they believe that every human is an incorporation of God. Therefore, the fact that Jesus is the Son of God is not, I would say, spectacularly different. That's my reading of Quakerism. So another Quaker might argue with me. There's yeah, there's no hierarchy. There's no hierarchy. Everyone's yeah. divine, and there's no, God's not out there, he's in here. So if I want to talk to God, I can just as well talk to you as to... You and know. we do get quite a bit of Daniel mm-hmm. of talking to himself. Talking to himself and talking and looking for the God in others. Having a hell of a time finding. Yeah, he gets pretty depressed because he's, yeah, he's yeah. not having luck there. Yeah. <laughs> but he's supposed to address that. So when he goes up to Mrs. Fox to talk to her about Bet, he's he's supposed to address the God in her, the godliness of her. Instead, he yeah. loses his you know he loses his temper. And yeah, I, I find that really interesting. The fact that he he buys the slave boy and. He's really angry and irritated with himself. So Well, and look what ensues. I mean, big cause for guilt. So how does that bring us to today? To today? Well, just the sort of the huge divide within the, mm-hmm. the American population. 50% are not fundamentalists, but they believe in the act of God. And uh, as opposed to free will, there's God's will. Mm-hmm. There's quite a black and white you know, if you if you blame everything on God, then look what happens. Well, do you remember there's that little, yeah, there's that little conversation on the porch with Mrs. Fox where she says, why would I go to church after what God done me? And he is horrified by that. But he also, of course, thinks that God is an agent when he puts his hand up. But he thinks it's the God inside him. He doesn't think it's a God outside of him. I don't know. It's I, involuntary. Yeah. It's like... The devil made me do it, except right. God made me yeah, do it. Yeah, except that that's not really how God works with Quakers. God should be, you know, guiding you in a more slightly more conscientious and conscious way. In a way that that ends up happily ever after. I mean, you're supposed to be meditating and pulling out of yourself the right and the good, right? So yeah. he certainly wasn't doing any of that. But I do think that, yeah, I think the idea of free agency versus fate is a bit played with in the book and I don't know what I ever resolve about it and I I think partly that's a 19th century conundrum isn't it they must have been very stirred up about it you know they were stirred up about everything 
Well, in those sects particularly, the, the hypocrisy around that. Some years ago, I interviewed Andre Brink, and we talked about the mere fact of colored people being around told you that people were breaking the law because it mm-hmm. was illegal mm-hmm. to have sex with someone of a different race. There's that clamp on human nature, that kind of restrictive... And the, and the very obvious thing of Jefferson, which, I mean, everyone points out, but it does fascinate me because I've read Jefferson, you know, the state of Virginia and all this stuff, he did not, at least on the page, believe that black people were human, and yet he was in love with one. I mean, I'm in love with my dog, but I don't think Jefferson thought about Sarah Hemings in that way. He must have deeply loved her. How do you it's square that circle? Where, where do you go with that? Yeah. So are we beyond racism? Now? Oh, God, no. Certainly not in the United States. Mm-mm. I mean, I can see in my grandchildren that it will be different, but it will be different because they've grown up in liberal homes around kids of various colors who are more or less equal. Mm. If they've grown up in a ghetto, there's still that hierarchy. Despite science showing that, that we all come from Africa anyway. Yeah. Well, and I mean, if you grow up at your middle class and, and all the people of color are poor... That's racism. I mean, you can't help but have a different, you know, we're not the same. Your culture's not the same. All that stuff, you know. So it's going to take it. There's certainly, we're still racist. Oh, yeah. And Uh, if we're not, why in Toronto are we so unmixed? I mean, I live in a big cosmopolitan city, and you rarely see much of a mix at a dinner party. I was on a bus for the first time in 20 years or so in Brampton. Mm-hmm. And I was the only white person on the bus. Mm. So that tells me, first of all, that the you know the face of Canada is oh, yeah. changing, and the mere fact that it is is a commendation of, of our, our ideals. Absolutely. Just that absolutely. mere fact. But it it is still kind of shocking because mm-hmm. we don't integrate as as well as perhaps we mm-hmm. could. Yeah. Do you think if you hung around the bus station, they'd ask you over for dinner? Probably not. No. They might though. They might. My it's such a funny experience. divide. It's such an unnecessary, mm. stupid divide. But it's so visible, that's mm-hmm. the thing. Mm-hmm. Your sequel to this, then, <laughs> will be about Benjamin. Mm-hmm. And if it paints him as a racist bastard, then you might be doing something good for race relations. You think? Because? Because he's a miserable shit. Owning him, yeah. Making him look like one. Mm-hmm. I'll see what I, I can do about that. Okay. <laughs> well, thank you so much for thank your time. Thank you. Uh, yeah. Pleasure. I've been speaking to... Nobody's ever brought the Aeneid to it. Well, there we are. I'm Boy, just sucking up here. Yeah. I'm impressed. So you have just written the purchase. What are you working on right now? It's published by McClellan Stewart. How about in the States? It's going to be published by Pantheon, and I believe it will appear in August. And how about Britain? They sold Britain, Britain. I have not sold it to. I'm hoping to. Yes. Well, they should. They should look at it. And what are you doing right now? Not much. Running around, chasing my tail, but thinking. Yeah, I have a few things in mind. Great. Well, thanks mm-hmm. again for your time. Thank you.